Gracious and loving God, we give you thanks indeed this day for a chance to come together and worship you and to learn from you, to grow in our faith, and to listen to a word from scripture and a word for our lives today. Amen. About 12 years ago, one of my closest friends found out that his wife was pregnant. I quickly realized that while this news would ordinarily be met with great joy, like many pregnancies, this one wasn't necessarily expected news. It wasn't necessarily even welcome news. And particularly for my friend, even while his wife was thrilled, he was filled with a bit of terror. And his relationship with his own father, it was far from ideal. And he was young and he felt like he had no clue what it meant to even be a father, especially again, given his relationship with his dad. And he was filled with uncertainty and fear that he just wasn't ready. Although I had not been in his shoes, I had heard a similar fear from many other friends of mine, friends who turned out to be wonderful and amazing and beautiful parents. But in that moment, I felt as though that news might not have been the most helpful. So I said something quite different. I looked at him and I said, you don't have to be ready right now. I caught him a little off guard, I think, but I continued. I said, you don't have to be ready because you've got a few more months. It was like a delay method. I said, it's gonna be a little while. I'm not sure how comforting these words were for him. But I'm also not sure I was even looking to offer comforting words as much as I wanted to provide him some perspective, an adjustment to how he was seeing his present condition, his present fear, his fear of not being ready. It was so real to him in that moment, but he was also having a fear of a reality that wouldn't come for several months. I wonder how many of you parents can relate to his fear though, that fear of not being ready. The day after their baby girl was born, I visited them in the hospital. And he was very, very quietly but proud telling me all that he had learned, that he had learned to swaddle his daughter and that he was tracking her eating and, and all of her many already diaper changes. He had this confidence about him that was, well, it was as natural as that fear that had rocked him when he first heard the news that he was going to be a dad. How often our fears come early? How often we fear things we don't yet need to fear and really don't even understand how to fear or that we should fear. The only comfort, again, that I could come up with in that moment for my friend was to delay his fear, to remind him that it was early. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of not being ready today. You've got a few months to get ready. In fact, we, we then proceeded in our conversation in, that early, in those early months, and our next step was to talk about the room where the baby was going to live and the arrangements being made with his employer and all sorts of other logistical plans. While his fear of becoming a dad didn't go away, he pivoted to the things he could control and the things he could understand and the things that weren't totally unknown. And the reason I've been thinking so much about this lately is that my thoughts continue to go back to a sermon in February 
one I referenced again on Easter, in which I talked about fear. Particularly, you may remember that I talked about my irrational fear of the dark. And really, it isn't even that sermon or, or that specific fear of the dark that I keep returning to, but rather the way that fear seems to overtake us. The way that our fears become more real to us than our reality. Our fears cloud our ability to see the world as it is, and they also make it hard to dream of a world that is different. Way back on Easter, I shared the common reassurance that the phrase, fear not, appears more than 365 times in the Bible, one time for each day. I later read that it was really 366 times, so even a leap year like this one counts. But then, like I suggested I might do, I started a little research further to look at this. And I found that depending on how you look at it, semantics-wise, the number was possibly a little bit lower, but if you broadened it a little bit, it was also quite higher depending on how specific you wanted to be. But regardless, as I said before, so many times in scripture we're told to not be afraid. And it's nearly always God or someone speaking for God who's saying it, do not be afraid. And God's always seeming to say it when all indica indications are that one should be very afraid. It's almost as though, as I've reflected on this further, that God's admonition to not fear is really an acknowledgement that fear makes sense, that our fear makes sense. And God's words then are an invitation to trust God in the midst of fear. Over and over again, over the past several weeks, well beyond any sermon series or even beyond the seasons of the church, our scripture lessons have included, acknowledged, answered, and even struggled with fear. I went back and took a little look. February 9th, we looked at the fear of the disciples when they were caught in a storm, and Jesus looks at them and says, don't be afraid. February 21st, the disciples went with Jesus to a high mountain where Jesus changes form and the disciples lay on the ground and they are terrified. And Jesus looks up at them and says, get up and do not be afraid. In March, when we began decreasing our public gatherings, thinking it was just for a couple of weeks and we offered worship online, in the face of fear we heard, we come and we turn in God to worship. On March 21st, we looked at John's gospel where a young man was blind and was healed by Jesus and the parents respond in this strange way as they're filled with fear of how they're going to be treated by others. And Jesus listens to them. He hears their fear. He understands their fear and he uses their fears to help them better understand God's love. And then there was the fear of those early morning disciples on Easter, told by the angel that they shouldn't be afraid. And, and the next Sunday, we looked at the widow of Zarephath, who was tempted to hoard what little she has because she's afraid. And Elijah looks at her and says, don't be afraid. And she trusts him. Fear. It keeps going. The, the next Sunday, we talked about the prophet Huldah, who stood up to her own fears. 
And then we continued that series on the women of the Old Testament and stepped into Hannah's story and Hannah's fearful and raw prayer before God, where Hannah cried out about her fear of the future. In the weeks since, fear has in some way crept into nearly every sermon. And again, again, this is because fear creeps or even leaps into our lives and because fear is written on the pages of our scripture. And why is this? The reality is that the entire story of God's intermingling with humanity is that God comes into our lives And God declares God's presence at the very moments where our fear has the potential to overwhelm us. The painful irony is that it is most often in our fear that we run from God instead of running toward God. We try and control the situation. And when we realize we can't control it, like my friend who was about to be a father, we we panic. I remember being fascinated about the concept of training high and racing low. Have you ever heard this phrase before? I'm not an athlete by any imagination, but I read an article many years ago about athletes going to places like Denver, Colorado, where the altitude is high and the air is thin and doing their training there, their athletic training there, so that when they came down to a lower altitude where the air had more oxygen, they'd be able to better compete. Our lives as Christians can be similar. We deliberately train. We we grow in our faith. We learn about God. We develop spiritual practices. And then when we encounter life's challenges, our souls, like our bodies, are conditioned for the race. We're conditioned to our reliance on God. Training and practicing in sports and even training and hooking up and towing a travel trailer like I've been doing, they, they help to change our instincts and our reactions so that, the, that, that when the pressures come, when the pressures of competition or of a highway full of cars, when those pressures come, whatever comes our way is met with a deliberate and thoughtful response. Fear is not... Uh, Fear not, sorry, fear not, is the cry from the angels to the people. Fear not. But the ones who hear this cry, this appeal the best, the ones who are able to respond to this reminder, this invitation, this challenge, the ones who are able to do it best are the ones who have practiced and trained, the ones who have learned to rely on God and what it means for God to be in control. Our text this morning is really about just that, control. Paul knows that humans, people just like him, have been disobedient to God for a very long time. In all the mistakes that God's people have made, God continues to bring them back. They wander and God follows them. They're taken captive and God frees them. God gives them rules, they break them, and God sends people to steer them right. This is the recurring story of the Hebrew scriptures. God uses these struggles and God uses broken people and broken promises to bring about something better. God takes brokenness 
like we've looked at over the past five weeks. And through God's grace, in our brokenness, we are made beautiful. God's inseparable love overcomes our brokenness. This is God's plan for God's people, continually working to redeem humankind and bring us to wholeness in God. And people, the people in Rome, and I would offer people today, worry so much about the question of God's plan for humanity, especially when we look at the world around us and we see the brokenness, brokenness in relationships, in societal systems, in racial injustice, in a pandemic that is choking our sense of reality. Brokenness is all around us. If God is in control, then our natural question is to ask, why are all these things happen? These things that so often lead to our fears, why do they happen? And these questions, the big questions, they're unanswerable. Theologians have come up with a lot of ways to look at it. But the reality is that in all of the brokenness, in all of the brokenness, it is God who remains working toward God's mission to bring about good in the world, that, that God is continuing to bring about healing in our lives and in our relationships and continuing to bring about the healing even in the midst of a broken world. This is precisely what grace is. And so our fears, our rational and irrational fears, our fears can either cause us to run from God or our fears can be a way that we can acknowledge that even in our brokenness, God is at work in our lives and God is in control and God's outcome will be an outcome where God will indeed be merciful to us. Paul writes to the Romans that God uses all of these circumstances, all of our story, all of your story so that God may be merciful. Paul writes that it's all being used so that God may be merciful to all. And so it is that, that in our stories, it is in our stories where God in the midst of all of our brokenness will make all beautiful. And so friends, we train high, we, we come to the mountaintop in worship, in prayer, in fellowship, in study within this community. And then we go out into the world ready to bring our whole selves and, and even and especially our fears and our pain and our brokenness before God and before others. And God's invitation then to us is to be a part of bringing God's grace into the world, to be a part of God's restorative work, to be a part of bringing God's healing into the broken places. And the question for us is how we'll do that. How will you do that? That's the partnership that God seeks in you and me, a partnership of training together, learning and growing and then faithfully sharing and loving so that when we and when others are faced with brokenness, when we're faced with pain, when we're, when we're struggling, we can be reminded that even in the midst of the brokenness, God finds us beautiful. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.